0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, Empowered Living, Volume 3, with a message titled, Walking in Wisdom. So let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 21, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: lives out the number of years that God has assigned to us. You know, some of us are given but a few days of life, and others live for a hundred years, even longer. Psalm 139 verse 16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God determines our days. He determines our conception, our development in the womb, our birth each day we live, and then the day of our death. If we know Christ the day of our death, well, that's not a tragedy. That's because Psalm 116 verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. God regards the day of the death of a believer as a precious event. He is ordained that day as the day that the followers of Jesus would be ushered into his presence. And so I'm not saying anything surprising when I say that our days are numbered and that they are bounded by God's decree. I've been talking about the Christian walk or the Christian lifestyle. There are unique features of the way in which Christians live. We don't accept the lifestyle patterns of the culture around us. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we you know, wear different clothing or speak a different language than the rest. You know, we live in houses or condos just like everyone else. We shop at the same grocery store as everyone else does, and we eat the same food. But when food is set before us, we don't dive right in. We at each meal take time to acknowledge that every good gift is from God, and so we pause and give thanks for God's gracious provision in the food. But it's not just the easily observable things. We're commanded not to live as the Gentiles do. We're to forsake sensuality and instead give ourselves in union to a lifelong heterosexual marriage. We're to reject greed and give our lives to generosity. We reject language that has any hint of filthiness. Rather, we are to train ourselves not to complain, but to give thanks in all things. And above all, we're to imitate our God and give ourselves to the lifestyle of love that Jesus modeled for us. We come today to a passage that further exemplifies the lifestyle of the believer. And here, the emphasis is on wisdom. That is, since we've been given a finite amount of days, the Christian lifestyle is taken up in exercising wisdom. See, I learned a great definition of wisdom from the great Old Testament professor Bruce Waltke. He said that the definition of wisdom is skill in living. We know that in life, skill is often required. I mean, we might think of you know a skilled surgeon, a skilled plumber, a skilled artist. But how about the man or woman who's skilled in living? That is, they know how to make decisions that lead to the good and avoid decisions and lifestyles that result in the bad. Wise people know how to skillfully manage the many challenges life has to offer. That's a part of the Christian lifestyle. We're called to live life with a great deal of insight, always considering the end from the beginning. So let's read our text. It's found in Ephesians 5, 15-21. addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, if we examine the text before us, we will see that it has a heading, Walk Wisely, and then it makes the point that the walk of wisdom is a walk that seeks to take advantage of the best use of our time. And then in verse 17, that is, following the heading, we come in verse 17 to the word, therefore. That is, once you've grasped the main idea, here are some practical ways of working that out. And what we find then are four practical things you can do to make your lifestyle a lifestyle of wisdom. So the command, walk in wisdom, and four application points that arise from it. So then let's get back to the command. Paul begins by saying, look carefully then, How you walk. See another way of saying that would be to say, live the examined life. Don't just let the current of life take you wherever it takes you. Carefully consider how your life is shaping up and the direction you have taken. Look carefully how you walk. The adverb carefully means something that's done accurately or precisely, or something about which we pay close attention. Now pair that up with the imperative to watch, that is, watch carefully. This tells us that the matter is urgent. Wake up! Pay attention! I hope you see the implication. The best way to live successfully does not begin by changing a number of behavioral patterns first. We all know people who do that all the time. So they want to lose weight. They want to get a better job. They want to go back to school. They want to write a book. There's always something they want to change or acquire or work at or make better in life. But the Christian lifestyle says stop! You know, first begin and examine how you're living at this point in time. Is your lifestyle, are are your choices, is the shape of your life giving the impression of wisdom, the wisdom that comes from God? See, Proverbs 10 verse 9 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Have you made the lifestyle choices based on what your parents taught you or what your culture taught you or what your own ideas dictated for you? Or does it arise out of a careful reading of Scripture? Are you informed from the Bible on the nature and being and attributes of God? Are you overcome with a holy reverence for him who knows all things? Or do you make life's decisions on some other basis? Let me put it another way. How many life decisions that you have made are made because a Bible text understood properly led you in that direction? None? All? Sometimes? How many? Be careful how you live as a man or woman who's been informed by the wisdom of God. Now that Paul adds to that, that behind all of this is the matter of time. See, it's not wisdom unless it works its way out in how you use your time. Those who are wise have an attitude about time that makes them unique. They know that time is of a limited amount and that are fully make use of all the opportunities that God has given them. They seize the moment that God, in his providential designs, has given them. See, we can't control the times in which we live, but we can seize the opportunities that God provides for us. And then Paul tells us why that's essential. He says, the days are evil. You know, for those who are unaccustomed to Bible language, you know, that might sound surprising. I mean, how are the days evil? And yet Paul uses that kind of language. You know, in Galatians 1-4, he speaks of Jesus, he says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That is, this evil age is the age of sin and death. And when Peter preached the very first Christian sermon, he ended up by urging his hearers, save yourselves from this crooked generation. See, this is a generation that embraces evil and it's under wrath get out of these patterns of living that mark the culture in which you live. You know, I've frequently heard of hospital patients who are required to take the advice of their doctors and other healthcare professionals. They're told, if you do this, you're gonna die. And then they simply don't listen. They ignore the advice, they die. But that's simply the nature of humanity. We make decisions that lead to death, and we simply don't stop, even when we know we're walking a pathway of death See the human situation is tragic god in his word tells us the way that leads to life but we prefer death see don't you see the days are evil the culture has values that lead to death as a believer in jesus you have to come to terms with the death wish of our culture and instead of following that lemming like over a cliff we're called upon to consider to examine our lifestyle so that's the heading the christian lifestyle is a lifestyle of wisdom Now in verse 17, on the basis of this defining mark, we're now given four practical applications, and here's the first. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Every believer is supposed to find it a matter of great interest that we're pursuing an ever deeper knowledge of the will of God in everything that we do. Now, this matter of the will of God has been a matter of some controversy. You know, when modern evangelicals sometimes talk about the will of God, they'll talk about it in terms of decision-making. And so, for instance, who should I marry? Well, God, show me your will. Or what career should I pursue? You know, God, show me your will. Or should I invest in this business opportunity? I mean, all of us know that there's no end to those kinds of questions. And this approach to the will of God, it's foolish. There's nothing in the Bible about who you should marry except, you know, a spouse that believes and of course, one of the opposite sex. You know, but the will of God typically is not who you should marry, but it has to do with something else. We're gonna turn to that next.
0: This month, don't forget to ask for the Time of Your Life five message Bible teaching series as our free Bible resource on CD. As you listen along and examine what the Bible has to say about how we use the time you've been given, you'll be equipped and encouraged to make your days matter for eternity. When you request your copy of The Time of Your Life, would you pray for more and more people to access these life-transforming riches in the pages of the Bible? Every day this teaching, verse by verse, reaches out across Canada and around the world, on radio and print and online, so that all might receive and experience a life filled with purpose. Back to the Bible Canada is so grateful for your support. To order the time of your life or make a gift to support this ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: When Paul speaks of pursuing the will of God or knowing the will of God, he's not speaking about choosing fish or chicken for your evening meal. I mean, Christians who look for the will of God in their life, apart from clear scriptural teaching, they're completely off track. You won't find the will of God by choosing to be a plumber rather than an electrician. Just pick one and then pursue the will of God. See, there are a few places in the Bible that do speak of the will of God in very clear and unmistakable terms. So 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. See, that's God's will. Walk in holiness. Stay away from any form of sexual contact that's forbidden by God. So don't wonder whether you should be a doctor or a lawyer That question is not as relevant as you might imagine. What's relevant is that you give yourself to holy living. What about 1 Thessalonians 5.18? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So learn, whether you're a doctor, a farmer, a lawyer, or a mechanic, to give thanks in all things, and you'll find yourself in the will of God. And so things like holiness and keeping oneself unstained from sin and learning the secret of being thankful in all circumstances. This is the will of God. And so Paul says, don't be foolish. Understand the will of God. You know, in the book of Proverbs, the fool is someone who just will not learn from God. Instead, believers are to understand the will of God. See, that term to understand means more than to simply intellectually understand. You know, It has to do with seeking to know how the will of God applies to everyday life. What does holiness look like when I'm at work or spending time with a family or volunteering at church or talking to the neighbor over the back fence or, or turning on the television or logging on? See, wisdom consists in understanding the will of God. Second, Paul says, don't get drunk with wine. So stop here and let's speak about wisdom when it comes to the consumption of alcohol. And here I need to make a, a personal confession. You know, I'm, a, I'm an old guy. Now, how old do you say, well, I was ordained as a pastor when my denomination demanded that I must make a commitment never to drink alcohol for a lifetime. Now, that wasn't a problem for me. I grew up in a home where where there was alcohol, but understand this. My parents would go through one bottle of wine in about four to six months. You know, they saved an occasional glass for a very special purpose, and that was it. They were never drunk, and they frowned on excessive drinking. But when I got into ministry, I saw how controversial this matter was. And so for the sake of my ministry, I thought it was a very small sacrifice to just go dry. I started that way in youth ministry, and I thought, you know, in this way, I'm never going to have to explain myself. And that's been my standard, as, you know, and for my wife as well throughout our lifetime. We just don't touch the stuff. You know, having said that, I do know that you can't make a biblical case against alcohol. However, the Bible is also clear that drunkenness violates the will of God in your life. And in our culture, alcoholism destroys one life after the other. There's more. Now that marijuana is legal, I now see all manner of Christians using it, not for medicinal purposes, but simply to achieve a high. And it's this chemical state of euphoria that the Bible speaks against. And furthermore, I have now seen, with the acceptance of alcohol consumption among evangelicals, that it's now become common even to see pastors confessing they've become alcoholics. So here's my counsel. If you're given to an addictive personality, and many are, just go dry. And furthermore, whatever you're hooked on, just remove it. I mean, how hard can it be? You can do it. But whatever you decide, commit that you will Not go near any form of overconsumption of alcohol or the use of any product designed to give you a euphoria. Let me also say that if you're given to alcoholism, might I suggest, you know, stay away from bars and parties where excessive alcoholism and unrestrained behavior is encouraged. You as a Christian have a different lifestyle. This is the will of God in your life. And it's right here where we come to Paul's third application of the principles of wisdom. Instead of drunkenness, he says, be filled with the Spirit. So why does Paul contrast drunkenness with a filling of the Spirit? You know, some people seem to feel that being filled with the Spirit is like being drunk, like being out of control. But Paul can't mean that. You know, in Galatians 5, Paul speaks about the fruit of the Spirit, and they include things like self-control, along with peace and gentleness. In other words, we're encouraged to be sober-minded. Nowhere does the Bible describe the Spirit-filled life as a life out of control. And that's why it should have been obvious when years ago there was this phenomenon called the laughing revival in which church members staggered down the aisle between the pews and said outrageous things and laughed loudly and were out of control that this is some fashion a move of the Spirit. You know, we know that's not a move of the Spirit. I mean, they used the word revival. It was anything but that. See, I notice in our passage the word but. Don't be drunk with wine. It leads to debauchery and depravity, but, you know, the word but is supposed to build a contrast to drunkenness. It's not that being filled with the Spirit is like drunkenness, rather it's the exact opposite. Nothing could be so unlike drunkenness as being filled with the Spirit. And from the book of Acts, I have noticed how often the filling of the Spirit is connected to the doing of the work of evangelism. In Acts 4, early part of that chapter, Peter and John have been brought before the Sanhedrin, and the Jewish ruling body demands they give an account for their Christian actions. This kind of pressure might make the strongest among them suddenly become weak. But in verse 8, suddenly Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to speak the word with boldness. Then later, in the same chapter, after Peter and John are released, the church begins to pray that in spite of threats and actions meant to intimidate, God would still display his power. And then verse 31 says, The believers in that prayer meeting were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. But in those passages, it seems like the Holy Spirit just takes action and fills believers. But here, in our passage in Ephesians, Paul says that believers are to be filled with the Spirit. That would mean we should ask for it. Come Holy Spirit, fill me that I may be bold and evangelize and do the work of Christ and be faithful unto Christ. See, that kind of pray and the Holy Spirit's response to again fill our lives with his power, well it's a marvelous privilege that every believer should know about and also we should take advantage of this. Of course, that doesn't mean that we receive the Holy Spirit all over again. We receive the Holy Spirit upon conversion, and his presence in our lives is ongoing. But every believer knows what it is to either fall into sin, or to slowly slide into a loss of spiritual passion, or to be intimidated by pressure from the outside world, or even to fail to have the power to share the gospel. You see, we know that our own efforts are not sufficient to prevent this slow drift into carnality. And of course, we should carry on with spiritual disciplines, especially the disciplines of faithful Bible reading and prayer and commitment to the local fellowship of believers and so forth. But all of our efforts are going to fail were it not that the Holy Spirit stands available to do what we can't do on our own. He renews our love for Christ and encourages us to walk in holiness and empowers us to proclaim Jesus wherever we go. It's a command. Be filled with the Spirit. And as we do, we'll find that we have replacement for the meaninglessness of life that the person who's given to alcohol actually exemplifies. We make the best use of our time. Finally, fourth, Paul gives a final example of what it is to walk wisely. And here, he talks about what the life of the Spirit looks like. Indeed, what Paul now does is describe what Spirit-filled living looks like among the community of God's people. Look again, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice how worship is a big part of the Christian's life? You know, for the sake of brevity, let me suggest that the singing of believers are put into three categories. I think psalms are a reference to the scriptural psalms. Hymns are a reference to doctrinal songs. And spiritual songs might be any singing that inspires more worship and more celebration of God. The point is, you can't be wise unless worship and the celebration of God is a central part of your life. Address one another, says Paul. Yeah, when you gather together and are with one another, worship, make it central. So do you want to be wise? Well, first, understand the will of God. Second, reject drunkenness and every state of drug-induced euphoria. Third, be filled with the Spirit. And fourth, worship with all your heart, and you'll be making the best use of your time, and you'll be living
0: wisely. Thanks so much, John. John, how would you characterize the spirit-filled life? Is it is it one of spiritual abandon, or is it of sober-mindedness and self-control?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you've already said it, yes. It is sober-mindedness and self-control. See, the thing about self-control is, you know, the, the life of abandon is easy. I mean, you know, just follow whatever passion seems to suit you at the moment, but self-control requires that you say no to lesser desires. It invites you to consider Uh, what is wisdom and what is the will of God in all things. And then it invites you to seize that and make it your own. So this requires a great struggle. And on the basis of that, we recognize we don't have the power for it. So suddenly we become aware of the Holy Spirit's power to allow us to live the kind of life we couldn't live any other way.
0: Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Empowered Living, Volume 3, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible Teaching, you can trust. As time speeds by, it's even more important that we consider how we live. That's why I'm so grateful for friends like you who walk with us verse by verse through the Bible. The encouragement we received recently from Ruth reminds us of how precious this is. Dr. John's teachings are fascinating and really bring the Bible to life for me. I can almost visualize the scenes in my mind, like watching a movie when I listen to him. I usually listen to the radio program at work and end up going home and rereading the passage he spoke about that day. And every time, I see it through different eyes. What a great way to use the time we've been given. With minds transformed by the washing of God's Word, We're given different eyes and God's own heart to see the world we live in. If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.